Hey Amazon selling enthusiast, it's Eric here. And if you're tired of the inventory management struggle, I've got a game changer for you. InventoryLab.com. InventoryLab simplifies e-commerce inventory management, integrates seamlessly with Amazon, and even syncs effortlessly with QuickBooks for hassle-free accounting. Go to Milwaukee Mafia slash IL now because your success deserves efficient inventory management. Happy selling. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia. This is Eric Waltigans. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, we're back with this letter that is probably going to be about nothing. <laughs> it, it might be about nothing. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I will say this is... One of my all-time favorite things I've ever found. So I, there must be some good stuff in there then. It must just yeah. not be ha- him babbling on about how his wife what? left him for... You don't like that? <laughs> you don't like him doing that? I, I just thought the last letter was really, really interesting. And then it just kind of trailed off into nothing yeah. for a long period of time. So All right. So this episode I'm calling Tony Spills the Beans. And uh, for those who didn't tune in last time, uh, you probably should. You don't always need to tune in every week, but this one might make a little more sense if you do. Uh, We talked about the murder of Jack Dentise and how this brought out uh, Tony Gennaro, who is in Waupun prison, and Tony writes a letter to the police um, saying how he knew Jack before he was killed. Uh, so this time we're going to talk a little bit about who Tony Gennaro was and continue on with the rest of the story that he tells the police. So Tony Gennaro, this is this is who he was before he's in Waupun prison. In January 1933, he is one of five Italian guys who display fake badges and claim to be federal agents to enter the house of Sam and Francis Lido in West Dallas. Sam is at work. The intruders search the house, and it seems that they did not find whatever it is that they came there looking for. But after they left, Francis searched around and noticed that two revolvers had gone missing from the house. So I don't know what that was about, but apparently they pretended to be federal agents and then stole, stole some guns. guns. <laughs> yeah. The very next evening... A man in Cudahy was hijacked by five men, including Tony Gennaro, Car- well, this is, these are the five men, Tony Gennaro, Carlo Galati, Tony Cicerello, Cosimo De Selvo, and Joe Scafidi. Most of these names you don't really need to know. De Selvo, incidentally, was the nephew of Andrew De Selvo, who was mentioned last time as possibly one of the suspects in the dentist murder. Uh, he's also the son of another mob member, Ben DeSelvo. Uh, the assailants in this hijacking believed that the man they hijacked was hauling alcohol. So they ran him off the road and searched his car, but they didn't find any alcohol and they let him go. But he was quick and he wrote down their license plate. The men were soon arrested in a soft drink parlor. When they were arrested, police found the two revolvers and four fake badges. Case closed. Cicerello, one of the men in the hijacking, was later murdered in Kansas City, and Scafidi is going to come back soon, maybe next time or within a couple weeks. So he'll come up again. But one of these guys gets gets killed in Kansas City, so 
you know, that's always that's nice. I don't, it's just half these names that get mentioned that eventually they're going to be dead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. That's how these stories go. So before they go to trial, there is yet another incident. A tavern in Mequon is held up by Tony Gennaro. $188 is taken from the cash register, and they also steal two slot machines. The tavern owner's wife and son were forced into the kitchen and locked inside. A patron chased the men in his car, but he was not fast enough. The robbers were caught within three hours because when the patron chased them down, described the car, the police were like, oh, yeah. We know who that is. We know who that is. <laughs> so when so instead of chasing the car down, they went back to the house and waited for the car to return home. And sure enough, eventually it did, and the cops arrested the men involved. The suspects took off. Well, some of the suspects took off on foot, but were quickly subdued. Uh, one of the men had a thirty-eight in his pocket, and everyone had some of the money on them. And all three of these guys that were caught, including Tony Gennaro, were sentenced to 10 years in Wapan State Prison. So this is why Tony is now in prison. He's he's had armed robbery at a tavern. He ran a guy off of, off the road, and he went into a house with fake badges. <laughs> so Tony has been up to some questionable things. We return to where we left off last time. Detective Bailey writes, Gennaro's written statement of conditions in 1934 is attached. From my interview with Gennaro, I am satisfied that he has intimate knowledge of a number of the activities of local and other Italians. He was prone to divulge details, but explained that a $17,000 fee for setting a local fire was divided in his presence. Gennaro had a list of Italians who he claimed had committed numerous serious crimes, including murder, arson, and holdups. He had the names checked for each crime the individual had committed. Gennaro would not let me see this list, but he gave me the attached list of crimes he wanted verified, and then he claims he will divulge details proving who committed them. He claims that Milwaukee's big boss is Joe Valone, a local wholesale grocer. He says that Pete Guardalabene is actually second in command. Mike Minio is also a local big boss. Frank Legelbo is a little boss. Andrew DeSelvo is in Racine, and he is a big boss in Racine. Gennaro claims that these big bosses order underlings to commit these crimes, but would tell no more at present about them. So I'll stop there for a moment. Yeah, I'm just curious. So just to give us an idea from what you know is what he's pretty basically saying. It sounds kind of accurate. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's right. Okay, you think it is right? Yeah. Yeah, and then now the other thing you you said earlier in the letter there there was something about a seventeen thousand dollar. Yeah, now, well, now this is crazy because apparently somebody maybe this will come up later in this, but so, he sees them dividing up money in front of him for starting a fire, usually like for insurance fraud, usually. Okay. And apparently the fee to do that was seventeen thousand dollars, which is ridiculous. Which is ridiculous because I've translated that, and in today's money, that's two hundred and ninety-seven thousand dollars. So the building they were burning down probably wasn't even worth that. Well, I don't know. Like I said, maybe it's in, I don't remember what's all in here, but you know, I mean, if it's if it's a million-dollar insurance payment, then I guess it's worth it. But it does sound like a lot of money. money. Yeah. Bailey continues. His former wife Grace, who is now married to an Italian. 
concertina player and living in Milwaukee could give us details of the present local situation if we could make her talk. He would not say much about her activities, but is very bitter towards the local big shots from the third ward. He believes that they had her divorce him as his friends wrote him that she was outstepping with the big bosses when he was sent to prison. She is an Italian girl. Gennaro claims that a Carl Dane, who was arrested with him one time, is wanted in St. Louis for murder, but would not give any details until the above-mentioned list of crimes are verified. Gennaro requested that he be deported at once, but this request was not granted. Now he is very anxious to be put on parole in September of this year. My impression of Gennaro is that he may be able to help us solve the Pasquale Caruso murder, which you might recall from a few episodes ago, and other local crimes committed by this gang that happened before 1934, before he was in prison, as he was very intimate with their activities and is very bitter towards them at present because of his wife divorcing him and the lack of assistance from Italians to gain its freedom, submitted Detective Bailey. Now this, this I think this is crazy, so I'm going to preface this. There is a famous mafia informant named Joe Valacci. And Joe Valacci um, kind of grew up in the mob in the 1930s. And then in the 1960s, he, he turned and they paraded him about. They put him on TV. They asked him questions. He went before the Senate and everything. And he was out of New York. Okay. And he was like this. Everybody was like, wow, this guy's really, really spilling the beans on everything. And he was, but I think there were guys doing it before him. Like, he gets a lot of credit as, like, the one who really breaks open the Mafia story. But as as we're about to see, Tony Gennaro, no, in his own little way. It's like I, the Milwaukee version of yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the Milwaukee version of Joe Valachi. So here is the list that he knows about. Uh, with my notes on it, there are... Seven things on the first list, and there are four things on the second list. Okay. Gennaro says, one, in 1930, a man named John was murdered in his garage in Des Moines, Iowa. The contract between the gangsters and the big shots was $2,800 for this murder, but they only paid out $1,050. I was not able to verify that one. A guy named John in Des Moines, Iowa, is not enough information that I was so able to figure out. So you weren't able to figure out who this person might have yeah. actually been or anything like yeah. that. Yeah, so whether that happened or not, I don't know. Could not could not verify that one. Number two. In 1932, Angelo Torello was murdered in his car near Rockford, Illinois. He was the father of two children and lived in Kenosha. The contract between the gangsters and the big shots was $7,000. The big shots paid out the money this time. Actually giving a name is helpful. Torello is a real person. Um, he was 37. The Chicago Tribune said that he was allegedly the boss of a southern Wisconsin rum ring. So he was a bootlegger. Okay. Um, he was killed a few miles north of Oregon, Illinois in April 1932. A win- and just for our information, Oregon, Illinois is by Rockford, I'm assuming. I actually don't know that I've found. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, he's generally right here. A witness said the car that held the killers had Rockford tags and license plates. Supposedly, he was moving in on Rockford's liquor territory. One week later, his house in Kenosha was burned down, and the fire inspector found his furniture had been soaked in kerosene. 
A few years earlier, two Rockford liquor investigators had been involved with Trello in a robbery of a Kenosha theater. Trello's cousin was a man known as Jimmy the Bomber, who is a Chicago outfit member, Chicago mafia member, uh, who was later murdered. Coincidentally, Angelo Turello's sister married another guy who was a member of the Rockford Mafia, and they lived just a few houses away from Rockford boss Tony Musso. Turello's brother, Joe Turello, was also a bootlegger, and he was connected to a, the biggest bootlegger in Canada named Rocco Perry. This is all off on a tangent, but the point being here is he was right about this. He got the name, the day, and the place right. So mm. that he was correct. Number three. In 1933, Rocco Siciliano was murdered in the road near Madison. He lived in Springfield, Illinois. That's all he has to say about that. And he's partially correct this time. Siciliano, who was 41, was the owner of a dance hall. He was shot in July 1933, so he's right there, and dumped in a ditch in Illinois, north of Springfield. He actually lived in Springfield, what his connection to Madison is, I'm not able to find out. So uh, saying he was murdered in a road near Madison, that is not accurate. But he's got the name and the date right and the fact that he's from Springfield. And I think I think it's important to say that this guy is going off of like hearsay probably of what he's hearing. Yeah, probably. So, I mean, to make a mistake like that is probably reasonable to an extent. It, it is a little weird that he was found in Springfield, though, when he... He says Madison. Yeah. But maybe there was just something in the conversation that was referencing Madison. And that's yeah. where the confusion came in, I would think. Correct. Yeah, I don't know. It's like he's he's working off a of memory and yeah, and he's hearing this all secondhand. So. Yeah, it's not like he was at every one of these murders. It's probably just he's at a bar or something hanging out with these people and they're talking about yeah. it. Mistakes are quite reasonable for him to not remember something correctly, I guess. Yeah. So Rago Siciliano, the person murdered in this one, um, he was a suspect in the kidnapping of Jerome Factor, who is the teenage son of con artist Jake the Barber Factor. Uh, and Jake the Barber is the brother making the kidnapped kid the nephew of Max Factor, who Max Factor is a guy who made makeup. So if you ever heard of the makeup company Max Factor... It's not just a clever name. It's actually the guy's name. I have never heard of Max Factor. Okay. Is well, this a big thing? It was a pretty big thing. Maybe it still is. I don't wear makeup. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it was definitely huge at the time. Number four. In 1933, $150 was offered for Pasquale Caruso to be murdered. Later, Caruso was slain in Milwaukee. We know this, is, this happened because um, we talked about that. Um, he wasn't very specific about who offered this money or what, so that's not very helpful. And why they only offered $150, uh, which is even in those days is pretty low to kill somebody. <laughs> Maybe the guy was just really not like, so there was just people lining up to yeah. take him out. <laughs> well, and that it, I believe, if I recall, that was kind of how the story went, is that he was just everybody hated the, the guy. guy. So, yeah, they probably didn't even have to pay him. <laughs> Number five. A man named Lobianco was murdered and buried on a farm near Davenport, Iowa. I could not confirm this completely. Um, Gennaro was possibly confused, and he might have been thinking of Joe Lobianco, so he got the name right if, if it was. 
But Joe LoBianco was not killed anywhere near Davenport, Iowa. He was killed in Pittsburgh. How did you make that reference? Like, you, were you just looking at like mafia type? Murders? Yeah, ma- mafia murders and, and with the and, name. And you're like, well, it, this could be right. I mean, could be. What it's he a was man with the about. same last name and the same date range that he's working with. But I mean, that's pretty far oh, off. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Number six. In June 1933, men working for the Big Shots held up a bank in Des Moines and escaped with $10,000. One of them was killed by a deputy, and $2,000 was found in his shoes. This is this is correct. There was a bank robbery. Um, it was actually in a town called uh, Bussy or Bussy, um, but it's just right outside of Des Moines. It's basically Des Moines. And a man named Tony Bonacino was killed while he was escaping and they did find almost $2,000 in his shoes. So this, this was true. Okay. Bonacino's partner, Sam Zarillo of Springfield was held by police after being found in Knoxville of all places. Both had been wanted for a state bank robbery in Kansas city. Another accomplice had already confessed to his role in that crime well, suspects Sam Guzzi and Harry Morgan had been questioned and released. Bonacino, guy with the money in his shoes, had previously served two years in prison for highway robbery. Pretty spot on. Got the got the date right, got Des Moines right, and knew about the money in the shoes. Just rolling through my head, I'm thinking, like, could this guy just know about these murders only because he heard about... Maybe there's people in Waupon that were somehow associated with these different acts. Any heard these stories in prison and that's possible that's then, definitely possible and just started spouting them out i mean i but i guess if he didn't have an intimate knowledge of it why would he volunteer to tell the police about it but i guess maybe just the police got him into interrogation because of the last letter and then he just started spouting out about other stuff he had heard in prison maybe i don't know just kind of a speculation, I guess. He could be getting this information from pretty much anywhere, but yeah, I mean, he could be reading it in the newspaper. Some of some God's of it, sake. some of this was definitely reported in the newspaper. Absolutely, so, yeah. But I'm I'm impressed like the fact that he's getting this kind of a distance, like that he's in Milwaukee and he's getting the middle of Illinois and out to Iowa, and he knows these things. I think that's pretty good. Yeah. All right, number seven. Another holdup was scheduled for Davenport, Iowa in 1934. This was a mail truck with lots of money. Gennaro was not sure if the theft ever happened because he went to prison before it got pulled off. As far as I know, this did not happen. I I don't know if he's accurate or not because there's no way to check it. He also had four events that he was not sure that happened, and he wanted police to verify them to see if they had happened. You ready for the mystery list? (laughs) Yes. One. A Mexican fellow was shot while walking down the street in Kenosha. He was hit by four bullets and spent several months in the hospital. The Italian gang was responsible, but a Greek man was arrested and convicted and sentenced to seven years in Wapan. I was not able to verify that. that. Do not know. Two. In winter 1927, a teenage girl was walking down the street near the police station at nine o'clock at night and her face was cut by an Italian because she refused to go on a date with him. I was not able to verify that. I figured you wouldn't be able to. (laughs) (laughs) Number three. In 1929, 
Anthony Azalotti was shot while walking near an old church in Kenosha. He had four children in Italy and was killed by order of the big shots. <laughs> this is true. This happened. Um, police did find the body of Tony and uh, this guy gives it as Ocelotti, but his name's actually Lanzalotti, but same thing. He's, he's close enough. Well, yeah. Um, of Tony Lanzalotti of Kenosha on Sunday, February 17th, 1929, lying in the street on 22nd Avenue in front of Our Lady of Mount Carmel Catholic Church. Four bullets had entered his back and neck, and a 32 double-action Colt revolver was still in his right hand. All six thirty-two, all six thirty-two slugs, whatever, had been fired. Nearby, homeowner Frank Pingatori told police that he had heard shots. No killer was known, and the last person to see Lanzalotti alive was Dominic Matera. He spent the afternoon with him. The police searched Lanzalotti's home and found a box with more thirty-two bullets. They questioned his landlord, but he knew nothing about Lanzalotti having enemies. They also found numerous letters from Kenosha girls of Italian descent and a paper saying he transferred ownership of his Studebaker to another man. So, uh, yeah, all this. And, and this stuff, this was not actually in the paper. This came out of a, a coroner's inquest report. So so not public knowledge is no. what that would mean. No. Okay. So that was pretty good. That was pretty good on his part. One more. Okay. Since 1924, 12 to 15 men were murdered in Kenosha by the same hands and always by command of the big shots. These men were connected to Des Moines, Madison, Milwaukee, Davenport, Kenosha, Springfield, Rockford, and Kansas City. This is so broad, I have no idea how to confirm that. Uh, many, many people... Um, in the Italian gangs were murdered in Kenosha. I mean, that's true. That's a fact. But I have no way of knowing what he's referring to here because he's not offering any names or anything. I wish, I really wish they would have come down and been like, tell us more. Yeah. <laughs> can we come- like, can we drill these down yeah. a little bit more? But if, so- the, but if they did, I don't know about it. It's not in the police file. Like in the police file, it's like the letters back and forth between the police and um, Tony Gennaro. And it kind of ends with this list. So I have no idea if the police even like looked into this list or, or even followed up with him on it. I mean, I like to think they did, but that record is gone. So, it's like it comes to me, and I'm like, okay, this is a guy who, like, at least on the surface, he knows things. Like, talk to him, get him to name a couple more names. Like, you can go somewhere with this. He knows things, and he's apparently very, for some reason, very willing to talk about. He's very what he willing knew, to talk. What yes. he knows, so yeah, and it could have been a goldmine of information. That and that's me. that's what I'm saying. I'm like, if you can get him to name a couple names and whatever, like, this guy's amazing. Because he clearly does not care. Like, whatever. He's like, the rules are they're gone. I don't care. You took my wife away from me. Now I'm mad. <laughs> so now what I want to do is I want to do my favorite thing and probably your least favorite thing. Oh, yeah. Like this. I, wa- I want you to take off your research hat and I want you to speculate. Yeah, okay. So you've talked about this, le- this letter. Obviously, there's a lot of information in that. You yeah. talked kind of about how it's spread out all over this 
huge geographic range. Yes. Theories. How does this guy know? I mean, he was obviously connected to the Milwaukee Mafia. We talked about names and people that we obviously know were in the Mafia. Right. That he was associated with. So he had those connections. But how does he get such a wide range? Is the thought that these are all Mafia connected murders? And why is the Milwaukee Mafia going after people in Davenport, Iowa, and Des Moines, Iowa? Yeah. Which I guess Davenport, I don't think any of the things he mentioned we could you could verify that they even ever happened yeah yeah it's that's a good question i can actually talk about that a little bit okay so there if you're trying to draw like a network of like how the different mafia groups throughout the country are connected there's definitely a big gap between like the midwest and the east not that they don't work together like if they have to or if it's convenient but they just generally don't. New York guys pretty much hang out in New York. But um, in the Midwest, I mean, we do see more of this where the Milwaukee guys, obviously a strong connection to Madison. That's not really that surprising. Um, and the Madison guys have a strong connection to, to Rockford, Rockford. I would assume, yeah. And the Rockford guys have a strong connection to Springfield. I don't know if anybody is really doing much of anything in Iowa. So I don't know if this is just them kind of traveling to do stuff because I'm not really aware of there being a gang, a mob gang in uh, Iowa. Um, if somebody wants to prove me wrong, I would love to know about it. But um, Iowa doesn't, Iowa is pretty small. Mm-hmm. So that, like, but, but then again, I mean, Rockford's small. So I guess that's possible. So it's really not that strange. For, because of this network, and even from there, like, to Kansas City and St. Louis, they, they do connect. So, like, Milwaukee guys aren't generally doing a lot of things in these other areas, but they know these guys. So, it could just be, like, sitting in the bar, he's hanging out with a bunch of Milwaukee Mafia guys, and they're talking about some hit that happened in yeah, Rockford. Because right. their buddy told them about it because they know this guy over in Rockford or something right. like that. And I could see the, how that would happen. Yeah. And, and the, the interesting thing about it, too, is is that I find, like, the money, the fact that he could say this hit was out-ordered and the the money paid for it was such and such amount yeah. or whatever. Yeah. That obviously suggests that if this is valid information, he had some very tight insider knowledge right. to it. Yeah. I mean, that's we have to go off the assumption that this is true. Um, but if it is true, yeah, he the average person they would not know what the price on someone's head is. That's not going around publicly. That's you have to hang out in the right dark corner in a tavern right. to get that information. information. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you think this guy was very? Was he just in the right bar at the right time to hear these things, or was? Do you think he was pretty high up in this? The mob to be able to know this type of stuff. I don't think he was high up at all. You just I don't think he actually just happened to be in the right place at the right time, hearing the right people talk about something. Yeah. I mean, this guy, if it weren't for the fact that he wrote this letter, I probably would have never stumbled on him at all because he's not, as far as I can tell, he's not related to anybody else. Uh, he's not, I mean, the, the couple things he did, like, I found that in reverse. Like, I find this letter and then I'm like, oh, who is this guy? 
So, you know, I do my backwards news search to figure out who he is and what he's done. But those crimes that I, that got him in prison, they probably wouldn't even got on my radar. Yeah. yeah. So. And it sounds like he was he was there. He was doing stuff. He knew people. He was connected. Mm-hmm. He didn't last very long before he ended up in jail. Right. 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 I mean, there's not a long history of him doing anything unless he just happened to like been around for like 10 years and then got caught up with the wrong group and immediately just started getting caught for everything. But it just sounds like he went out, got caught for everything and got thrown in jail. Yeah. I mean, and he does say he was in the alcohol business for a while, which he, he didn't get caught for that. So maybe he was really good with the alcohol business. I don't know. And then he tried to get into more crime and realized, yeah, "Yeah, I'm not very good at that part of it. Apparently. Yeah. (laughs) So no, no, I mean my my speculation on that is he's pretty low. I I couldn't even say for a fact if he was a member or if he was you know what we call the associate. I'd like to think that he's a member that he's getting at least this prices on people's heads. I I would like to think that's not just going around to anybody, um, but I don't know that. I have no idea. I could see he if was- he was a member, he should know better than to talk about yeah. it. Yeah. I would well, and I'm gonna get to the whole talking about a thing because I also have a theory. I want to hear your thoughts on it with that. Okay, but I think he he may have been an associate, but if he was an associate, he was tight with a member, and, and that's that how that member, works. Yeah, yeah, and that member really trusted him, so he might have been able to go places where a lot of associates weren't allowed to go, but that was because this guy would bring them there. That makes sense. sense. Yeah. It would be that would be kind of my theory on that. And that that is that is basically how that works. I mean, because when you get in, you get in because you have a sponsor. sponsor. So yeah. He would be he'd have to be tight with somebody before he ever got anywhere. Yeah. So and then my thought on your reaction to so he talks about how in the original letter in the last episode, he talked about how he was obviously very bitter about the fact that his wife left him. His wife went off and started whoring around with other people in the third war. Well, the, and, you don't know that. Well, you don't know but that. But I mean, that's what he speculated. And obviously she ended up getting remarried, which sounds like her new husband wasn't even a bad guy. No. Not even mafia tied. No, so he was actually a, a really good guy died. by, you know, all the reports and everything. But... But I almost wonder if he was bitter about all, the way that all went down, that it made him just not care. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to spill the spe- secrets of all these people. Yeah. All these people because they ruined my life. They took my wife. They did all these things. Well, I mean, that clearly is what happened. <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's still weird, though. I think it's the weirder thing is that they allegedly they took his wife away, but... Do you, do you know, does he ever get out of prison? I don't. I mean, he gets out of prison, of course, but I don't know where he ends up. up. Like, trying to find him after prison, I can't find him. So my assumption was that he got deported, but I don't oh, know Oh, that's that. right, because he mentioned in the letter that he was. they were trying to deport him. They were they? trying to deport him, he, uh, he claims. He claims they're trying to deport him, um, which isn't really that hard to do. If you're born in another country... And you go to prison, it's not hard to get deported. deported. Yeah. But now, wouldn't it be pretty easy to find it if he had been deported? Because couldn't you no. just... No. No, because there's... 
like if you come to this country, there's immigration records. But there isn't records when you get shipped back. No, like I mean, there's there is, but it's like through like the State Department and things like that. It's not like easy, like looking up a name and like a ship record. Mm-hmm. So they don't have like ship records for like who's leaving. <laughs> only only oh, for I only suppose, for who's coming okay, in. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose that makes sense. Uh, well, you know, you were recently in Mexico. I was, and. They didn't ask you a lot of questions when you left the country to go to Mexico, no, no, did they? No, they didn't ask me. Well, I mean, you, and to be fair, when you leave the country, you don't even talk to immigration for the country. You talk to the immigration for the country you're going into who they just don't care. Yeah. See, so, <laughs> see, so, I mean, that's it's not exactly the same, obviously, but, right. but, but it's like they don't make a record of who's leaving, leaving the country. Necessarily. Yeah. They only care when you're coming in and stuff like that, that yeah yeah actually does totally make there'd sense. be a record somewhere because you'd have to go through like the deportation proceedings or whatever but i have no idea where, where that to, is where to find it. Yeah. and you would think that would have to be almost public record but yeah, i'm sure it is but i don't know where yeah. it is well it was an interesting episode and um got it it's got to be one of those things where you look at it and you're like man i just wish i had more answers because this is just there's so much there and just to be able to verify every one of them, because they probably are all accurate to an, to, to to an, an extent. extent. Yeah. And it's just a shame that he didn't know at least a name for each one of them that you could at least. Yeah, I would have liked to have got path. it a little bit more. I mean, I thought it was even if he's getting this secondhand, even if he's getting it from other people in the prison, wherever he's getting it from. I just think it's neat that he's putting together this network of people in southern Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, and, and being like, yeah, these are all – this is all one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which at this point in time, I don't know that the police – I mean, they knew that there were Italian gangs. They had figured that out a while back. Right. But I don't know if they really understood – The connections. Yeah, how this them. all worked yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny that you never found anything beyond this. And I almost wonder if they just shelved it. Yeah. You know, like, if they just looked at it and said, well, sounds like a lot of work. Let's just, <laughs> let's just not do it. Well, <laughs> you know. Uh, I'll be I'll be fair. I'll be fair with them. And so this letter, if people want a copy, I mean, I can always make them a copy. I have that. But, but where I got it from is it was in the uh, Jack Dentist murder file. That's that's where I got it from. So it's entirely possible that there was more correspondence, but it didn't go in the Jack Denty's file because it's not specifically connected to that. So this letter got put into a different file with a different case number. And you have no idea what that case number is, essentially. is what It's possible. Well, it's us. possible. And the problem with that is unless it is a homicide case... They do not keep these cases. Oh. So. So if they just had like a, here's our random file on things Tony sends us. Somebody shredded that a long long time time ago. ago. Yeah. That's too bad. Yeah. Like the only things that they keep, almost everything else they shred after like 10, 15 years. So, So the only things that stay on the books basically forever are the murders. And that's only relatively recent because as we've learned- before the 1930s, those records don't exist. <laughs> so, 
It wasn't until somebody was going to throw out the 1930s ones where they're like, wait, maybe we shouldn't throw these (laughs) out. Yeah. So. All right. Well, you got anything else on this one? No, I have one random thing at the end. It's not really um, related, but uh, but Captain Kramer, the guy who was kind of in charge of the dentist investigation and who uh, Tony tried to correspond with, but Kramer sends his assistant instead. Uh, he ends up to go on to be the longest-serving police officer in Milwaukee history. Oh. Uh, Kramer is on the Milwaukee Police Department force for... 49 years, which is a long time for a police officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's still a, a police officer well into his 70s. When he finally retired, he died a few months after he retired. But, so, I mean, life wasn't worth living after he was stopping no, a police officer, huh? No, but I mean, that's, that's a real commitment to the job because, as I'm sure most people know, um, you get a pretty decent pension yeah, as a police officer. You pretty much, well, if you hit fifty, you can kind of yeah, take it easy after that. You get, but when in what is it? What are we talking? Nineteen. This what? is well. When he reti- by, by the time he re- he retired in fifty four. So it could have been a lot different back then. It could have been. Yeah, that's true. But I I like to think that the police have been treated pretty good by the city. But it, you're right. And now the guy from Opon is his name's escaping me. Tony. Tony. Okay. So I when you when you read the actually letter in the last episode, I was going to ask this question. It sounded like Tony and this Kramer had a, some sort of relationship. If they do, I don't know. But oh, they, okay. but they did they did write like they did. Yeah, like he would, the way he wrote in the first letter, he's like, "Hey, t- hey, Cr- whatever Kramer's yeah. first name is." Yeah, like, hey, like ca- I've hey. been meaning to reach out to you to talk to you about this. Like, yeah, like, hey, Captain Kramer, and then yeah. I was like, "Hey, Tony, how's it going?" <laughs> yeah, like, um, sorry, it took me so long to reach out to you, but <laughs> no, I agree. Um, but, but you were never able to find how they could have crossed paths. No, I mean, it, it's entirely possible that they knew each other because got arrested maybe. because of when he got arrested or whatever. Uh, I I don't know if people know this, but if you get in trouble a lot, you <laughs> the, you, you actually get to know the police pretty well. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, so they might they might know each other just because of the fact that Tony's had to talk to the detective so many times. But no, I have, other than that, I have no idea if they know each other. All right. Well, that's going to wrap this one up. Gavin, you know your duties? Yep. I'm going to throw some contact information. <laughs> yes, you are. All right. If you want to email, you can email MilwaukeeMafia at gmail.com. You can go to MilwaukeeMafia.com for uh, all kinds of writing, things that have not yet appeared in books. So you get them now while they're still in their raw form. And uh, you can go to Facebook.com slash MilwaukeeMafia and find me there. And I post something like three, four times a week. I'm actually pretty pretty good on my Facebook. And as always, if you like this show, please drop us a uh, review on your favorite podcast player. We will be back next week with another full episode. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you then. All right. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.